Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I am excited to welcome back today's guest, Bill McNabb. Bill was our first podcast guest when we launched the series, and I'm grateful that he's agreed to share some more wisdom with us all. Bill, of course, is the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard and the current director of IBM, United Health, and several other organizations. He's an internationally recognized governance guru, and I am delighted to have him back with us. Alan, it's great to be back with you. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to talk to you today about CEOs. You've been quoted in the past as saying something along the lines of agility and the ability to pivot have become more important than ever for CEOs and management teams. And of course, we had our own experience with that with the the pandemic. But can you talk a little bit about where you see the need to pivot the most and and the agility has come to the forefront the most from what you see uh, across the corporate landscape? So, um, you know, really good observation in terms of uh, agility. I, I would say it's both. And I'm not sure that one trumps the other, if you will. It's almost a chicken and egg thing uh, for me. So CEOs and management teams clearly have to be more agile to deal with the uncertainty out there. You know, you can lay out a strategic plan and then, you know, the pandemic hits or, you know, supply chain issues because of that pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought you were going to do has to change. And how you're going to do it has to change. So CEOs and teams, their ability to constantly revisit their strategy and, you know, really pivot when necessary uh, to achieve longer term goals is I I think it's critical. Boards have to be able to keep up with that. You know, I've I've heard actually from some CEOs and management teams that their boards aren't agile enough in order to keep up. And the management team will see the need to change. The board will be, whoa, it feels too quick. You know, are we abandoning this to, and and then they don't get the capital allocated that they need to make these changes. So I think boards actually have to be able to keep up with the leadership teams um, from an agility standpoint. But I would say it needs to go further. If you're a board, you want to be encouraging this kind of agility all the time. And again, the best boards I see really do this. They're constantly pressing management. Okay. Love the long-term plan, but boy, we're kind of failing in these two dimensions. Why? What's happening? Oh, maybe our assumptions weren't right. Maybe we need to tweak this. Maybe we need to actually pivot over here and do more in this space because we, you know, the world has changed in ways we didn't anticipate. It's that kind of dialogue, Alan, that's so important. So to me, it's a both. You know, I'm looking for that in all the leadership teams and CEOs in particular uh, with whom I'm involved. But I'm also looking for boards to a be able to keep up and, and and more than keep up, actually encourage this and be catalysts for some of the discussions. So, what are two or three other key attributes that you think CEOs need to have today to succeed in the rapidly changing, evolving business climate that we're all living through? When you start coming up with uh, lists of capabilities that CEOs need, sometimes it's very daunting. I look at it and go, whoa, you know, who wants this job? But, you know, if I boil it down, I think there are a couple of personal characteristics that are important, whether you're a CEO or whether you're a leader, or frankly, whether you're a great individual contributor or something. And I think people have to have uh, an amazing, I'll call it growth mindset. Leaders have to want to learn. They have to be incredibly curious. 
And it sounds really obvious, but you know, a lot of these folks are really smart and they, they basically assume I, you know, I've learned what I'm going to learn and you know, or I am what I am. I think nothing could be further from the truth. If you, if you're not constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to add new skills to your repertoire, I don't think you're going to be successful. So that growth mindset. And then uh, I, I think certainly the pandemic underscored this, but you know, grit, you know, to use the Angela Duckworth term you know, more broadly resilience, um, incredibly important personal characteristic because you're going to go through tough times as a leader. That is the one thing that's constant. And if you don't have the resilience to sort of work your way through that, you're not going to be successful. So, you know, this growth mindset and grit, these those are like personal characteristics that I want to see actually at every level among my leaders. And I certainly want to see it even among my top individual contributors. You know, the more specific things for the CEO, I would say uh, two or three additional things. So one, um, this combination of uh, driving a relentless drive, frankly, for results for the corporation combined with personal humility. The best CEOs really demonstrate that. Jim Collins called it level five leadership. I love the term. You see a lot of people who are driven for results, but they're driven for results because it soothes their ego to be sort of, you know, lionized and so forth. The best folks I've seen, they're just relentless about the company's success and they're very humble at the same time about their own personal success. And you'll you won't hear them talk about what I achieved or what I'm trying to do. You'll hear them talk about the company and the we. And that combination to me really separates the best leaders from, you know, what might otherwise be good leaders. Uh the other really big distinguishing characteristic certainly at, at Vanguard and I've seen this play out now in a lot of other organizations we wanted uh, our leaders to all be comfortable and actually excellent at being both members of high-performing teams and leaders of high-performing teams. That could be a difficult thing to do, but you know, the ability to be part of a high-performing team and then to lead high-performing teams, I think, sets organizations up for sustainable success. One individual visionary can drive the company for a, a period of time. But if you don't get this high-performing team concept down right, it's really difficult to make that happen over multiple generations. And, you know, again, for me, uh, this was a very, you know, hard-won lesson, if you will, watching. You know, we Vanguard did a brilliant job. Uh, Jack Bogle, you know, was the visionary. He laid out our path, um, you know, incredibly clearly. And then very importantly, he and the board selected Jack Brennan to succeed him. And Jack was the ultimate team oriented leader. And what that allowed us to do was to take that founding energy that Jack Bogle had provided and sustain it over multiple generations. And, you know, it, it's interesting, each generation of the company has, in a sense, built even more success than the prior generation. And that's a result of this team orientation, I believe. And so I'm, I'm always looking for that, you know, as a board member and, you know, as an advisor to companies, how do you actually do that? And, you know, I think the best CEOs really figure it out. So while we're talking about CEOs, it's a good segue to one of the most sensitive topics in the governance arena today, executive compensation. Where do you see the really hot button issues today around executive comp. And then there's the ESG slash DEI piece of executive comp, which is also front and center. 
What do you think the, the burning issues around executive comp are today? Well, I think there are a couple things. So one, I've seen some academic data recently, and I, you know, it's out there. Um, I, I, I can't quote it, unfortunately. My memory's not that good, but that suggests that there is better correlation now between executive comp and performance. Like, I think the say on pay movement over the last decade is actually driven you know many companies to better align executive comp with actual outcomes is it as good as it needs to be probably not i mean there're certainly still plenty of situations where people it feels like people are paid too much for just mediocre performance i do actually think the the say on pay movement and the way boards are thinking about aligning executive comp and and long term comp very importantly with long term results I think it's improved um, pretty dramatically. You know, the elephant in the room is how much is too much, right? And, you know, that's where a lot of the criticism comes in um, from some quarters is not necessarily the lack of alignment, but like, just is it too much versus what an average employee makes? Or is it too much just given society overall? I'm a big believer in letting market forces uh, determine that, you know, I could have that exact same debate around pro athletes, you know, entertainers, musicians, you can, you can work your way through all different categories. It's not just CEOs and it's a legitimate conversation to have, but unless someone comes up with a better mechanism, I still think market forces are, are, are the, are the way to do this. You know, it's interesting. It was, um, in the late nineties, um, it was a reaction to CEO comp starting to get it, um, out of line that actually exacerbated the problem. So, you know, the fix was to go in and like reduce cash compensation and put a cap on it and say, you need to be in, you know, you need to be compensated more in stock so that your interests are aligned with shareholders over the long run. And this was actually, this happened, I think, during the Clinton administration, if I, if I recall my dates correctly, and it was a big push. And so what, of course, happened is CEO, CEO cash and cash bonuses went way down, um, you know, uh, overall, and more got put into stock. Well, when the stock market took off and, you know, the, you know, the, all of a sudden these total compensation numbers got really big, everybody was up in arms. But it was like, no, wait, you you asked to better align outcomes with um, compensation. And that's exactly what happened. So. I think this is a very nuanced and very complex subject and, you know, simple, you know, sort of simple gross fixes to it, if you will, actually have made the problem worse, not better. Yeah. And I, I agree with your market forces comment. And I think about it, given our practice from how many people are there that can run a hundred billion plus revenue company in an industry like that? How many people can run JP Morgan, a $3 trillion plus asset institution that Jamie Dimer runs? So are the numbers huge? Yes. One of the things that I think people really don't get right in the debate is, you know, they, they, they look at the societal issues around um, pay uh, equity, if you will, and the wealth gap. And there's no question that the wealth gap has grown dramatically over the last 20 years. And again, I could walk you through all of you know what I believe to be all the causes of that. Changing CEO comp isn't going to do anything to that, right? That is not what what the fundamental issue is. The, you know the fundamental issue is capital has been rewarded dramatically more than labor. 
And whole, that's a result of a whole lot of different variables. And again, you could go at CEO comp, it's that will not close the wealth gap that will not change the, um, the dynamic in society. So to me, if you really want to get at the issue, um, you need to go much deeper. And it's a much more sophisticated and complex set of questions that you need to answer. You know, the other thing I would say about it is, and this will sound defensive, and it's not meant to, but the number of public companies has shrunk from just under 10,000 in 1999 to less than 4,500 today. The number of private companies in the same period is, I don't know, quadrupled or quintupled. So there are a lot of people opting out of the public markets, not because they don't believe, you know, not because they, they, they need to, they're doing it actually because in the private markets, people don't talk about, you know, CEO comp um, in the same way. It's not under the same level of scrutiny. There are a whole other number of issues that have driven the rise of private companies, but there's no question in my mind that this is one of them. And I, I'm sure in your practice, because I know you know you deal with a lot of mid-cap and small-cap public companies and also mid-cap and small-cap private companies, you know, the private companies are a lot happier about, you know, just they don't need to focus on that. They can be very laser-like focused on performance and really returning value to both their customers, their investors, you know, their other stakeholders. I think there's some lessons there. And, and again, to me, it's a very important data point that people need to think about because what we don't want to do is create two economies where all the cool stuff happens in the private capital markets and you know the legacy companies that are in the public markets are kind of a secondary feature, if you will. And I, I worry about that quite a bit. And our, our private clients or mutual clients, they oftentimes have the ability to think a little bit longer term because they're not quite so worried about what's happening this quarter or the next couple of quarters. So I agree. I do want to just make one comment on what you said about um, return on capital versus return on labor. I think we're in a, in a time when that's shifting a little bit. You know, the demographics in this labor market are not going to improve significantly for companies of any size in the near term. The demographics are just very against that. Uh, and I do think uh, we're in a period, not just because of inflation, that labor, um, the rewards for labor will continue to rise. And I, I feel, I think it's a good thing, actually. And I think that's part of what maybe helps get at that imbalance a little bit that you are talking about. Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that could get, that could um, actually improve that. And I also think, you know, something as simple as supply chain issues, you know, um, I think it's been a very rude awakening for a lot of companies that to, you know, save, you know, 5% on your costs and, and, and put it out and put yourself at risk of not actually having the materials or the services that you need just for, a, a, you know, what a minimal cost savings or a cost arbitrage. I think everybody's going to be rethinking that pretty dramatically. And so, again, I don't know what the new order will look like. I think labor will have a different point or a different point of emphasis than it has. I also think, you know, you're going to see some real shifts in terms of, you know, globalization, supply chain optimization, and and, and all the things related to that. Well, Bill McNabb, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to the Talent Pool podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to hear more from our guests or learn about our firm, please visit kaplanpartners.com. Thank you for joining us. <music>